Hey, everyone. Well, we said you weren't getting any episodes this week or next week, but surprise, here we are. We are re-releasing our live stream conversation with Jamie Gehring, the author of Madman in the Woods. It's our conversation with her about growing up next door to Ted Kaczynski in the woods of Montana. It was a wonderful conversation, so we can't wait to share this with you. We love Jamie so, so much. And this is one of our live streams that you can catch on once a month, Saturdays, that we choose to do them. We also put these up on our YouTube channel, so you can grab them there. But if you're a Patreon member, you always get the audio to this the day or two after we actually air it. So you can listen to it on your own private secret podcast feed. So again, just wanted to remind you that this interview with Jamie is a perfect bookend to where we started when we first began LA Not So Confidential. We were lucky enough to have a fantastic interview with Fitz, Jim Fitzgerald, the FBI agent who basically was responsible for bringing down the Unabomber. It was a great opportunity for us. We've maintained an ongoing professional relationship with him. And to be able to have a completely different perspective by speaking with Jamie Gehring, unbelievable. So we hope that you enjoy the opportunity to listen to this today. I did want to give you a heads up. It is from our live stream. And the live stream technology that we use is really wonderful. But every once in a while, there's a glitch in the sound. So what you'll notice on my end, Dr. Scott, is that for the first 10 minutes, my sound is a little fritzy. Then it cleans up. And then about halfway through the episode, there's another 10 minutes. We really apologize. There's nothing that we can do on this end from editing it. But I do know that this is kind of triggering for some of our listeners. So I wanted to give you a heads up. Please be patient with us. We're trying to iron it out. Thanks so much and enjoy this wonderful interactive episode with author Jamie Gehring. Welcome everyone to Behind the Couch. Dr. Shiloh, I'm here with Dr. Scott. And this is our May Behind the Couch. We're down to only doing them once a month. Officially, we're starting that next month, but you know, we had Crime Con. So this was when we could fit one in. Is it the end of May? How are you doing, Dr. Scott? I am doing good. I, we were talking a little bit before we officially got started. At, um, I managed to come back from a family reunion after a whole span of COVID. Um, never getting sick, and I got COVID. Um, oh. Lucky enough to have been boosted and vaccinated and, vaccinated and boosted. And yeah, also you know got access to... Yeah. Thank you. Apparently, it uh, affects brain function as well. Um, South got this medication called Aclavid, which is unbelievable. Like, um, I got really sick one day. You could feel it coming on. It was... Mm-hmm. Uh, cold ever and i don't and i actually mean that in a bad way like you can't yeah. move your head is just splitting um weird breathing stuff and then with hours of taking the medication you could just feel the symptoms and not like a you know like you take dayquil which was also hilarious because you were on dayquil the other day while we were doing an interview yeah and you were so am and <laughs> Like, just like, I've never seen you. You were like, uh, and then it ran out like five yep. minutes before we finished. 
the interview. Oh, yeah. It was like somebody took Dr. Shiloh's battery right out of her back. It's yeah. Like, like, oh, I got to sit down. Oh, no, I, th- I, I was getting dizzy. I, like, had to sit down. I've, I've had a terrible cold, as you can hear. Um, but, yeah, we both go out of town. And then, of course, we come back with a bunch of cooties. So, um, yeah, Scott got the, how did we, the Alabama family back, variant. And how did we get back from Vegas? Like, we were talking Unscathed. people and taking pictures. I don't know. Thousands I there. I don't even we, know. But it's amazing. Maybe it was just saturating us for a few weeks. Uh, well, we have a wonderful, wonderful show for you today. Of course, we have another amazing guest. We've been so excited about for a very long time. I have to talk with Jamie about like just how long we've been talking about doing this. Um, but we have some housekeeping things to get out of the way. I also, I, I think we'd be remiss if we just didn't at the top talk about it just being another unfortunate, um, really tragic week in this country. And, um, you know, there's so, it feels like so many layers to the the school shooting in Texas. And I want you guys to make sure you're taking care of yourselves as well. Some of the stuff we could talk about today could be heavy. And, um, you know, I think it's really important for grief in general to be witnessed. And I think this tragedy really needs to be witnessed. And we do need to understand and feel the pain of these victims. But you can you can feel it when you're ready and you can pull away from it when you need to as well. So just make sure you're taking care of yourself and knowing when to turn off the news or turn off your phones. Um, and you don't have to saturate yourself in it all the time, 24-7. So with that... Completely agree. Yeah. um, We are going to welcome some new Patreon members that it's been a little while since we've done this, since it's been about a month, but we have a few names and then I will do the monthly giveaway for May. So Scott, you want to do our new members? Yes. Welcome new Patreon members, Melissa L., Larry I, Ken J, Emma H, Nicole P, Kate W, and Ken H. Again, I always say this, and I'm telling you, it's always sincere. We are just so unfortunate to have people that are patrons and help support us in this effort. And thank you so much. And we hope it is worth every bit of your money and more. It's what we work towards doing. So thanks a lot. Yes. Thank you so much. And it's also assisting with. That's just bringing everybody more content now as well. So our monthly May uh, merch winner is... Let me spin this wheel. These are all of our patron members get put into this every month. And they get a free item of merch. And... (laughs) So this month is the podcast that no longer exists. Yeah, no, yeah. But I know that's Molly. So I am going to reach out to her and let her know she is our winner this month. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Right. It, it still exists. Like, it's an archive. You can go listen to Yeah, No, Yeah, and those girls. Yeah, anybody who's here the Discovery, Yeah, No, Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a revelation. I it really, really is. I enjoyed it. Missed it. Yeah. <laughs> and Molly actually does have a YouTube channel now. It's called Crooked Timber. So um, she's hilarious on that as well. Go check her out, please. Um, all right. We have a busy show. We are going to get into it. 
Jamie Scott is going to do an introduction and I'm going to unlock these spots so you can jump on at your leisure, lady. So everyone today we have with us Jamie Gearing. She is an Montana native who grew up sharing backyard with Ted Kaczynski, the man widely known as the Unabomber. Uh, Jamie was featured in Netflix's Unabomber in his own words documentary where she discussed the role in Ted's capture. She earned her BA in visual communications and has worked in financial advertising, advising, and graphic design. And she currently lives in Denver, Colorado with her husband and three children. And we are so lucky to have her on yeah. as a guest today. And please check our links on our site and on this post. Buy her book immediately. It's unbelievably fascinating read. I mean, we don't have people on that aren't good authors to begin with, but uh, this is amazing. It's an amazing experience. I want you all to benefit from it. Absolutely. We'll try to get those links up. Hi, Jamie. Hi. Wow, Dr. Scott. Thank you for those wonderful words of outline. You had me almost in tears talking, you know, at the beginning of the show, of, of course, about the tragedy recently in Texas, but... Mm -hmm. Then you add in those complimentary words about my book, and I just have to kind of take a minute. Oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> no, I, I'm happy to be here. I gotta tell you, um, I mean, I, I, Shiloh and I laugh about this all the time because we have probably now 10 year tech thread between two of us that like could be its own novel. And it's, sure. it's almost 24 hours a day, no matter where we are in the world, it's always going on. And as a creeping trying to catch up on reading the book because she's like five chapters ahead of me and and she's doing audio and reading at the same time i text her and i go i was completely prepared for this to be not impressive at all i mean i was just prepared for it to be interesting and you blew me away i your writing style is amazing and so engaging and and I, what you capture in your experience, I think, is unlike any other description of Ted's life. And I just think it's a really valuable perspective. It's a really valuable perspective and, and so well written. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, so how long ago did we start talking about <laughs> connecting? I mean, it seems like forever ago. It, it, well, it was, um, it was forever ago, Dr. Shiloh, because it was right when the documentary came out. So that was 2020, I believe. Okay. Um, yeah. Is when you and I connected just via social media. And then ever since then, you know, we've been chatting back and forth. And I told you I was writing this book. Um, but of course, it didn't come out until April of this year. So now we officially right. get to talk about it because it's out in the world. Yay, it certainly is. And getting wonderful responses, from what I understand, um, that has just got to be so exciting. Um, I'm curious, just off the top, it, you know, diving into the area of true crime is is its own world and universe. <laughs> um, how much of a consumer or had you dipped your toe into this arena at all? Was this even interest of yours? And I know your book is more than that, you know, for sure it's a memoir. Um, but, you know, what was your sort of idea of what the true crime genre was? 
So I actually didn't consume a lot of true crime prior to writing this. But as I was writing it, especially when I was working on my um, book proposal, I really started to just read and listen to all sorts of podcasts and books, especially uh, titles that I thought might be comparable to my own story. My um, Because it is unique. It's a braided memoir. So it's my story combined yeah. you know, with the, this killer's and everybody around him, basically. Um, so anyway, I, it was a small amount. But now I will say I definitely um, consume a bit more. And I'll be honest, when I started writing this, I wasn't like, this is going to be in the true crime niche. I just wanted to always write this book. And yeah. so I started to write this book. And then as I researched, I discovered what a huge uh, um, amount of people are interested in understanding true crime. And that's a whole nother, obviously, a whole nother discussion. But yeah. I find it very interesting. Yeah, that there are all these people ready salivating for this book, for something like this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I just thought of that. My my um, sister-in-law is getting ready to write her first true crime book. And I told her, you have to come to CrimeCon and just see the just the wild beast that this is. Because she's like, same thing. Like, she has not, you know, really been that person standing in front of the true crime section at, you know, I don't know, whatever bookstore when we were kids. <laughs> yeah. But, no, it's uh, wild though. Now when I got it, like I just went into Barnes & Noble and I saw my book uh, next to uh, Paul Hole's Unmasked. I saw it next wow. to Trailed. I saw it next to Gone in the Dark. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is, this is yes. wild. Yeah, you have an idea. Again, and your voice is to me is so unique. And I, I just, it's something that's so different from the other things that I've read. And yeah, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, had you had aspirations of being a creative writer before you started this? How did that? I have always loved writing. And um, it's not something that I was able to put a lot of time to until I start until I decided to write the book. And that was about five years ago. And when I first started, I just basically like dumped every memory that I had of, you know, childhood interactions with Ted, things I remembered in conversations in our home and interactions with Ted and my father that I witnessed. And as I developed my voice. And as I revised and um, went to classes and really became a true writer, those those changed so much. But obviously, the, the stories remained the same. Um, so it was, it was definitely kind of a journey for me. And it was really cool because when I got my publishing deal um, after I found an agent, I reached out to... And there were professors I had in college that had complimented my writing. But it was honestly my high school English teacher that um, just was so complimentary about my writing. And I had to like find him on Facebook of all places and just tell That's him... That's so neat. I would tell him like how much his words really stuck, stuck with me through all of these years and the writing um, process. And you know... It, it, every book gets rejected initially. Like the, this industry is very difficult to break into, especially for a debut writer. Mm -hmm. So as I went through this process, his words like were just right at the mm -hmm. forefront of my mind. So I was I was just so happy um, to to reach out and just let him know that 
educators make such a difference. And um, he's still in that profession. So that was pretty cool. How special for him, I'm sure. Wow. So great. That's amazing. So we were really first introduced to you in the docuseries uh, Unabomber in his own words. How it, it it sounds like I I don't know really with the timeline now that I think about this as far as when you had the idea to write the book and when you were first approached to do the docu series, but what was that like for you and your family to be approached to participate in that? And did you have any hesitation about that at all? Yes, I um, definitely had a lot of trepidation um, after Kaczynski's arrest in 1996. My family only had done like one or two interviews and um, and my dad just shut all of uh, all other inquiries out. And, um, you know, so many years later, it was definitely a tough decision whether or not to participate in this. Um, and and the other part of it is it's kind of it's kind of terrifying to to do something in film and then you have no creative control. You don't know what the end product is going to look like. Yeah. And so um, I did a lot of research on the production company and the other participants, one of which was David Kaczynski, I um, reached out to. And I knew that he was very, very private and he only participated in a very select amount of media interviews. Um, so I just really wanted to get his take on it. So I I talked to him and quite a few others before I decided to participate. And honestly, I'm really glad I did. They're incredible human beings. The production company that uh, produced, which is Yap Productions out of Canada. And of course, it went to Netflix. But they, I mean, they're such supporters of my book as well. They blur one of the writer and producer blurbed my book, which is incredible. Awesome. And um you know, they they did, I, I believe they did a really great job of showing a lot of different um, perspectives around the case. Yeah, definitely. And it didn't come off as exploitative like a lot of documentaries do nowadays, which, you know, a, a lot of us in this genre are trying to say, like, we need to move the needle away from that and be more victim-centered and um, just stop showing graphic photos and um, glorifying the the horrific parts. And that's what was really lovely about the documentary. So it's nice to hear that they are good people behind it too and that you trusted them. And I love, I love that your stepmom's in it. I think she's a riot and we get to know her definitely through your book <laughs> more. And I love the story that you tell about just her having enough of Ted's shit and doesn't want to answer his question for the millionth time. Can you talk a little bit about <laughs> how how she chose to speak to the Unabomber at one point? Yeah, so I will share a, a small story before I get into that. So while taping the documentary, um, the production company flew me home to Lincoln, and to Lincoln, Montana. And uh, Wendy, my stepmother, was interviewed first. And so I'm kind of watching... And I hear her, like, the question is, like, what did you, you know, what are what were your thoughts about, about Ted? And she goes, well, I thought Ted was a real dick. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I love us. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love her. And so, um, you know, that just kind of, like, shows you uh, kind of yeah. her humor and the kind of person that she is. But, yes, through the years, like, she was the one that... Um, did not take 
any crap from him. And even, you know, I write about there was a day that um, Ted had worked at our sawmill, my my family's mm-hmm. sawmill for a day. And Wendy was, my stepmom Wendy was his boss for the afternoon. And he was, he had an issue with the fact that a woman was his supervisor. And so that, and then also they had a pretty difficult relationship through the years. So um, it makes for a pretty, pretty interesting scene in the book. And it really shows your personality. It's also, you hit a wonderful, you hit this wonderful mixture of really, you know, you you can, I'm going to get so elaborate here, but you can smell the wood. I mean, you're, you're describing the beauty of the wood as the bark is being pulled off. You can, Feel your stepmom's pissed offness, like she's yes. so irritated with him. So it's almost humorous. So you you really hit this wonderful balance, this juxtaposition between, oh my God, this guy's a killer. He is mm-hmm. like a he has done horrible things. Nobody knows right. that he's done any, has any inkling, and they're inches away from him, like a likeness to it. I don't. So I don't know how you did that magic, but it. It's amazing, and I hope you continue to write because that was. Beautiful. You know, you know. Thank you for saying that. But honestly, I really think that in in this particular instance, it's because it's my perspective. It's it's still like there's that part of me that's that little girl mm-hmm. that uh, felt okay. kind of um. I don't. I wouldn't say like safe around Ted, but just like he was. He was kind of the strange, odd hermit next door. But I wasn't terrified of him, and he was. You know. There were softer moments. And so I think that probably comes out throughout the the book in some scenes because that's just like that little girl still, you know, that, that makes sense. That remembers um that that sort of those light scenes, I suppose. You do this unbelievable job of describing the grandeur and the beauty of your home, the nature around it, and how you grew up in it, how important it was to your dad. And I feel like I know your dad, in a sense, from the way you have described this lovely man. One of the things that also kind of moved by is like you have that child's sense of wonder. We really do feel like we're looking through your eyes at all these experiences. With the the interactions that you paint between Ted and Wendy, and I don't know if it's just confirmation bias because of the perspective that Scott and I have really dove into Ted's case before was we specifically had Jim Fitzgerald on to at the same time that Scott and I were doing some research into incels and incel ideology with Fitz. And I really thought like, aside from the technological piece, Ted could fit the definition of an incel in a lot of ways. And we had him on the show to talk about behaved in the presence of women before. And Fitz was able to enlighten us a little bit more with some of his writings about you know, anger towards women. And um, when we had those additional little glimpses of him just not being thrilled that Wendy was his boss for the day and the way he chose to handle that, aside from the stories that we already knew, like, you know, his postings with the woman he dated at where he and David worked, um, I just felt like it kind of added another little piece that, you know, is something that we've talked about before. It was just such an interesting way that, yet again, we have an example because there's so few limited examples of him interacting with people in general. <laughs> but then adult women, and especially if they had sort of this power and authority over him, um, that just didn't seem to be, you know, 
something that he was okay with. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well to compare the early Ted, when I say early, it's like late 70s, early 80s in Lincoln, Montana, um, in his interactions with my own mother, because my mother and father ended up getting a divorce. And so my mom, of course, she was younger and um, it it was a different time also with Ted Kaczynski. It was, you know, Mm -hmm. he was real definitely into his bombing campaign, but it wasn't, he wasn't um, so immersed into it. He hadn't spent um, so many years in isolation yet. And, you know, we, we watched him change through the years. Um, But it is really interesting to look at that Ted with my mom and how those interactions looked and then compare them with the later ones with my stepmom. It just kind of shows the yeah. de-evolution, I suppose, of this man through the years. I think so. Yeah, there he's on a different path, changing. There's also, you know, just differences with, you know, how Wendy wouldn't put up with this shit. But also, like, there was no shit it sounded like to put up with necessarily on your mom's part. You know, everyone is just sort of younger at that time. And, you know, he was okay with being folded in. And then, you know, when tell Wendy tells him to go buy a fucking watch or clock, then it's like, okay, that probably dictated for him. Like, oh, this is one of the bad ones. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, that, those that was my kind of context when writing is like what my mom experienced, what my stepmom experienced, what I experienced. But then writing the scene about Ellen Carmichael, and I'm sure you guys are um, aware of that, but, you know, to any listener that hasn't heard that story before, Ted had been dating this woman and um, he ended up making threats to her after she had broken up uh, with him and ended the the relationship. It was was a few dates. It wasn't really a relationship. But what I didn't know, actually, until I was writing and I actually spoke with FBI agent Max Knoll, who is the arresting officer, and I also spoke with Fitz about this as well, is that Kaczynski had plans to murder Ellen. Yeah. He had a he had a knife hidden in the, a bag in um, his vehicle, and in that meeting, he had planned to disfigure her. Right. And fortunately, as he says in his autobiography, that his anger just kind of fizzled out and he was able to just get over it. But I mean, that was still early Ted. So that was the same man that was at my parents' house holding me oh. as a baby and um, having these interactions with my mom. So that was pretty terrifying to, to actually read those words. Yeah, that that really was like- there. Yeah, it really feels, you know, I grew up in a time where did every neighborhood had an eccentric person, right? You know, there was somebody, there was the old lady that was the hoarder, there was the guy with too many dogs, you know, you just didn't think of in terms of mental illness. And we also interacted as a community, but I think that's another thing that you paint really well in your book is that his desire for isolation is his undoing because he gets more and more disorganized and disheveled, he yep. and decompensating and falling apart. He, like you said, he's devolving because he has no connection with anyone at all. At least that and being that you were so close to such danger. It, it really is. And, 
I always knew, I mean, he was the Unabomber. He was arrested when I was 16 years old. He, I knew that he killed three, he injured, you know, 23, and that he was the longest running domestic terrorist in United States history, which was all terrifying. But mm-hmm. then truly reading his journal entries and how especially he would, um, you know, talk about his victims as experiments. And when he would end up murdering somebody, he would talk about, you know, how he was basically boasting about it and and what a what a great way to die that would have been. I'm sure it was quick. I mean, things like that. Um, it really just brought to the forefront for the first time for me what was going on in his mind just a quarter mile away from our log cabin. And, you know, the the even closer to like the forts I would play with and the backyard that we shared. So um, I think, and Dr. Scott, you mentioned this earlier, it's it's kind of as you're reading a book, it's kind of um, you're along for the ride with me because you are. I, like I'm uncovering these things as I'm writing the book. And so it's it's a journey. Truly, it was a journey for me. And then it's a journey for the reader because... That was the experience. Well, I don't... Honestly, I do not know if I can put my finger on another book that I've read that is sort of in this style where I literally feel like I'm standing over your shoulder watching you do your research and like going through the process of writing the book, which is so meta. It's like... (laughs) We we're we are literally along for the ride with Jamie as she's conducting her research for this book while she's writing this book. And I'm like, how the hell did she even do this? <laughs> okay. That's you know, what Shana, you you brought me back. What my point was because I gotta tell you, I was up late one night, like probably Thursday night. And it, I was right at the place where you you know, I think it's the last third of the book where you really start describing the incidents of people knowing they're being watched, everything getting creeped out because, I mean, grew up in a rural area too, you do have a sense, sixth sense about big open spaces or forests because you're out there all the time. And who knows what it is that set that off, but you really captured that, that people just, they knew somebody was there, they knew somebody was watching them or tracking them. And it was, like Shadow said, I felt like I was right there with you. I, do, are, do you know if there, are there any plans to adapt this? So there have been a few early, um, early interests. It was right when my book sold, and so when I say sell, it sold to a publisher at, at auction, which just means that multiple publishers were interested, and so that was advertised in the literary world. And I did get some interest at that point, but the book wasn't even out in the world. So I was just like, let's mm-hmm. kind of let's get this done, and then. Yeah will possibly talk about. Um, But, you know, like what I was saying earlier, it is is frightening because it's my story. It's very personal. And um, in a lot of instances, things are changed a bit when it it goes um, to like a television series or something like that. So that would be my trepidation there. But I definitely, there's definitely interest. So we'll see. Yeah, that would be really exciting. I mean, it's, Go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. I was going to say one other thing that I think that you are so beautifully is it really is you share a version of your own coming age and you're very honest about your own adolescence and the impulsivity and kind of pushing back against authority. Uh, it's beautifully done. 
And I, you know, so I hope, I hope whatever adaptation eventually get done, uh, you know, um, let's, let's all our fingers crossed that it's really true to your story because it's, it's a special story. Everybody put in the chat who you want to be cast as Jamie. <laughs> we'll start helping you out. Our listeners are really good at like fantasizing about who they want in their media depictions. <laughs> I love it. Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking either Reese Witherspoon or Renee no. Zellweger. Her. Oh, okay. If, if okay. Reese would like to first add me to her book club, that would be yeah, seriously. And then so yeah. that's step one. <laughs> yes, yes. But we need like a 16 year old Jamie too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Definitely. On the motorcycle. She needs to know how to ride yes. a motorcycle. Yes, she does. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, it's definitely not, it's not just a true crime book or a memoir, but it's certainly an ode to your father as well. Um, did that just feel like a natural piece to braid into your story or were you really trying to to figure out a way to make this a legacy to him too? That's how it started, honestly, is I always wanted to tell my father's part in this. And um, she had had these little mentions in some other books that were published, but never really to this degree. And so it was important to me, especially after he passed away, that I need to I needed to write this down. I needed, um, other than like the three people that knew <laughs> what yeah. actually happened to be out in the world. And so that's that's really kind of how it started. And then it just progressed from there. Obviously, it, it changed into much more um, than just that because it's my own memoir. And, um, you know, but that's still present in it, which yeah. makes me really happy. And I think he would be very, very proud and kind of happy how how it's, how it's the whole story is told. I think so too. I love just this. I call it a scene again because it feels so visual, but just where he's like, you know, drinking his coffee. He knows he can't tell you guys what's going on. He's getting out ready to go like videotape the property and like, all right, I'm going to go do this. Oh my gosh. Asked me to. And I didn't even, I didn't even know all of this until I'm writing the book. And so um, part of this experience for me was also very healing, like um, as far as going through my own grief and, um, you know, I I flew out to San Francisco and I sat down with the FBI agent that arrested Max, or excuse me, arrested Ted, Max Knoll, who had become friends with my father. And um, I just got to hear all of these stories about my dad and Max and my dad's help on the investigation that I had never heard before. And so, um, you know, that was just personally really important yeah, to me. And it was crazy that the footage that you see in the um, documentary, you actually see my dad videotaping the property mm-hmm. leading up to Ted's home and then around and then the actual cabin. And I had never seen that before. Um, it was property of the FBI. And I had asked Max, Noel about it. And he was like, well, you can write to the FBI and, you know, they will potentially send it to you. But it, you most likely will not get it before this documentary airs. And so I did and I got it. And so the, the, the footage you see is actually from the FBI that they sent to me that the production company was able to put in the doc. No so yeah. the production company actually got it from you and not the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I bet. Just there's the, you know, you can hear the story from someone, but then there's the footage of your dad carrying this camera 
nonchalantly, you know, down low so Ted doesn't know what's going on. I mean, just what a moment to capture for as tough as your dad was. I mean, who has been asked to do something like that? You know, I just cannot imagine the the nervousness that was going through him that day. Wow. Absolutely. And he knew that he that Ted was a hunter. He knew that yeah. he had rifles. And then at that point, he knew that they suspected Ted of being the Unabomber. And so who knows what was in there? And um, well, come to find out, there were um, rifles and a gun that Ted had made. And even though in his manifesto, he had said that he would cease um, bombing after right. the, the manifesto was published, there was still a bomb that was wrapped and ready to be sent under his bed. And so, I mean, of course, my dad didn't know that, but still just thinking about the possibilities. And so that was another reason it was important for me to tell to tell that side of it. And I'm sure like what my dad was going through psychologically prior to doing that. Can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between your dad and Ted? So in those early years, um, you know, it was just, he seemed like the fellow mountain man, the eccentric hermit. And as you said, Dr. Scott, like in those rural environments, there are many people who choose to li- to live off grid, and there are many people who seem to be a little bit strange. And of course, Ted was one of those. But the entire town did not suspect ever of Ted of being violent, or of course, being the Unabomber. Um, and and probably it's part of his cover. I mean, he was out there on this. Um, 1.4 acre parcel in the middle of the woods in a 10 by 12 cabin with no running water, no electricity. Like who would suspect that this kind of deranged man living this way could ever run from the FBI for 17 years? Riding, you know, his only transportation, a rickety bicycle that you see him wobbling past your house. And I, that was one of the things that um, not to derail you too far from Dr. Shiloh's question, but how did he get the money to buy the bus tickets to travel to these places or even the money for the postage? Was this from stealing the scrap and selling it? Or what do you think? No. So he was funded by his parents. His um, parents had um, an account set up for both the boys and when they needed money, like, you know, in David's case, if it was for education or anything that would come up, they would help the boys out. And with Ted, he got a pretty regular stipend, but he also survived on he had like $250 a year. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the, bus, the bus ticket was probably his biggest expense. And the hotel that he would stay at, um, because he would get a ride into Helena, he would stay at a hotel the night before he left, and then he would take the Greyhound bus to go deliver his bombs. Um, so yeah, and uh, I mean, he did have little odd jobs through the years. He, I think that was the reason he worked at my dad's sawmill was he was in need of funds. Um, I talk about in the book too, there's a scene towards the end prior to his arrest where he sits down with another community member and it basically he's sitting down with him because he needs money. And so he's trying to figure out how, how he can, how he can do that. Because I think 
the way his bombs became much more sophisticated through the years and the the expense of them and carrying out these acts of terror did as well. And so this money that he was getting from his parents isn't enough. Um, but yeah, so that, you know, through those, through the years, my dad and Ted, you know, they, they were very friendly. I mean, Ted helped um, build parts of our home and they had dinner and we always gave him a ride. And my dad, uh, it just kind of speaks to my dad's character because my dad always, you know, thought the best of someone until he didn't any longer. And that was, that was Ted. Like we just kind of took him for what he seemingly was, which he was seemingly this kind of strange neighbor that needed your help every once in a while. And, and kind of like this, this mountain man living this very principled life, which on the surface, that was something that we all kind of respected, you know, that he chose to live this way. Mm -hmm. Um, but through through the years, as um, you know, he was more immersed in his um, campaign of domestic terror, uh, and it, my father had plenty of altercations with him. You know, like there were times where he was, um, you know, spraying weeds around the property, and had completely lost his mind. Uh, you know, and and now we know a lot more about those types of things. So I can kind of I can see where Ted is coming from having that around his home. But at the same time, he was showing that like inner rage and he wasn't able to contain it as much. And so, you know, especially as the years progressed, my dad was a bit more leery of him and there was just something about him that he, you know, my father's sawmill was sanded and um, he initially suspected Ted. He thought, Maybe you know, hmm. maybe it, maybe it's him. I, there's something about him that I don't trust. He confided in that another neighbor, and the other neighbor that had been close friends with him years ago was like, "Oh no, that's just Teddy. Like he could, he wouldn't do anything like that." Right. Um. Yeah. So it is interesting as well to see like the you know the the sophistication of the bombs increase the the um focus on fatalities the focus on holding a nation captive, all of these things increasing over the years paired with Ted's appearance changing and then wow. the personal interactions between us all, all of us changing, right? The it, decompensation. Well, yeah, the decompensation and then that extra element as he's becoming more proficient, for lack of a better word, in his method of killing you also start putting in chronologically the communications he's having with his family, mm-hmm. which are so evident that like this is a truly broken, disturbed individual, as well as having some some psychotic features, some antisocial features, some homic- many homicidal features. But he, you can tell he's hurt. Like he wants to connect but he just doesn't have any facility to connect with any of these loving family members who really did care about him. In fact, the way you set it up to show how he misinterprets every action by his family goes on to be paralleled in how he misinterprets all of the interactions that you as neighbors have with him. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you meant to do that, but it's really elegantly done. And I would go so far as to say 
And I'm not, like I, I say this about many of the the perpetrators that we will talk about on our show, is that you can hold two things simultaneously in your head. You can hold your absolute anger and hatred and revilement of someone who's committed a terrible crime. And you can also feel great compassion and sympathy for them as a child at that moment that made them turn to become this person. So I, I thought you did a really great job in illustrating that in setting up that that timeline with your sharing of the the bits of his letters. And now, were you able to do that because of your relationship with his brother? Yes. Um, the relationship with his brother was one of the factors. And then there are so many documents that the FBI holds and that were used in his case. And so they're, they're public documents. It just took a lot of digging to find those, the, mm-hmm. the copies of the things that were used at trial. And so some of those letters were what the FBI was using to, to build the case. And, and some um, was probably um, on, the, uh, on the side of Ted as well, the, the defendant. Um, but yeah, so it was just kind of a, a, a compilation of different um, sources, I suppose, being his family, the FBI, and then the public documents. So, and I think that's probably what took a really long time as well for me is going through those because, I mean, just Ted's writings alone, thousands of pages, because he's writing every single day mm-hmm. in his, in what I call his journals, which were basically just notebooks that he kept in his cabin. But he's writing, yes, he's writing about his crimes. He's writing, but he's also writing like what he hunted that day and what he's eating and what he's reading and books that he's reading. And so that took a really long time and then some are in Spanish. And so I um, I don't know Spanish very well beyond like high school Spanish. <laughs> so here I am like using like Google Translate to try to figure out what he's saying in so many of these entries though. Yeah, it was a, it was a <laughs> so, lot of digging. Along those lines of what he's eating, because I mean, I grew up in Alabama and I ate some weird stuff, but we never ate porcupine. How do you eat porcupine? I don't, Great question. I don't believe I've ever had porcupine, so I can't really speak to that. But yeah, okay. I found it that. It seems in, like a lot of work for. Yeah, it does. I know. <laughs> And speaking of David, is he just the nicest man ever? Because I cannot picture a nicest, nicer man on the planet, just how he comes off. He is truly like the nicest human being I've ever met in my life. And you look at, you look at both Ted and you look at David and you, um, you know, especially while I was writing, I was looking at his upbringing, Ted specifically, mm-hmm. and his parents and what was there and you know, how in my mind, trying to understand like how this murderer was shaped. And then you look at David and the incredible things that he's done in his life as um, an educator and um, uh, he's um, an advocate against the death penalty. Um, So he, he's done, he's done so much work in this world and he's been through such horrible heartache. I mean, even just looking at those letters Mm. that Ted was writing him while he was still living in Lincoln, Montana in his cabin, they're just heartbreaking. I mean, same with what he would, that's the words he would use with his own mother. And um, 
boy, just the, the pain that that family had to experience. Sure. And then the pain of having to be the one to let the FBI know that your own brother is the Unabomber. I mean, right. it's truly just unfathomable. But he has, you know, he's been able to process it. And he obviously has read my book. And it was one of the most terrifying things waiting for him to respond when I sent it to him. One, because he's a writer and that's always just like a little intimidating yeah. anyway. But then also just having to bring all that stuff up and, um, you know, knowing what an incredible human he is and having to read all that, that those painful um, experiences again um, was was hard on my part, I guess, like waiting for that. But he's been really supportive of the book. And yes, he is just the most incredible person. <laughs> he really seems like it. Oh. Um, I want to talk, you talked about like a couple of the neighbors and the other per- people in the area of Lincoln. Um, can you speak just kind of about the community and how they felt after this all came to light? Because you know, aside from seeing his decompensation, this was a person that was part of your community. And were there people that felt like they had enabled or had missed signs and cues? Like, what did that feel like for you guys that lived there? I think the entire community, well, I don't think, I know the entire community was shocked. I mean, I, even reading, so there were FBI files, um, that were interviews of the townspeople after Kaczynski's arrest. And so I read through pages and pages of those and people were still like in complete shock in those interviews. Like there's no way he's the Unabomber. No, you need to look into this further. You're wrong. There's There are violent perpetrators in this community, but he is not one of them. I mean, everybody was just in complete shock uh, after the arrest. And um, there were definitely people, and the librarian is one um, that, you know, did carry some sadness and definitely um, was a complex realization of who this person was because he would come into her library, he um, tutored her young, her young son, and they, they, they saw him as a friend. The, the little boy even called him Uncle Ted, um, and she was also, it's not like she was purposely doing this, but she was providing the directories in which Ted was looking through and finding his targets, and they were outdated, and, you know, people that he didn't intend to actually um, die or get maimed were. And so I there's definitely um, a horrible layer of responsibility in in that and then there's another neighbor who um when there was some um there was some um damage caused to a cabin nearby and the police were questioning if it could be Ted and they asked this neighbor Chris specifically and he was like oh no Ted would never do that and in fact it was Ted he wrote about it in his journals and he had vandalized the home and their property and so um I, you know, if that if that was seen so many years ago, then who knows what the the narrative would have been? And so he definitely 
he definitely had some some personal guilt in that as well. So there's just a couple examples. But yes, as a community, it was a, a very difficult thing to reconcile. Well, I wonder if it was also just a feeling of betrayal too. You know, this is one of our own, someone we've, you know, given rights to and taken care of and taken in in certain ways, you know, and uh, this is this is how he repays us. This is what people are going to know Lincoln, Montana for now. Absolutely. Yes. Wow. My goodness. Um, so I feel like a touchstone of the book, and I think this is really a part that our listeners is, are going to be very interested in is, you know, the when you describe him coming over for dinner, holding you as an infant, rocking you to sleep, right? And that's that perfect image of this juxtaposition of what we know as Ted. Throughout your research and then, you know, through the rest of the book, do you feel that you continue to learn more and uncover more to fit that narrative? And I don't want you to say like, hey, this is where I stand on how, you know, Ted became this way because I know that's kind of part of, you know, the journey of the book. But did you find through your research that there was just for as much good you could find, there was as much bad and kind of unfolding in that way? Yeah, I definitely think that every time I would discover like that, you know, that sweet story of him coming over and holding me as a baby and asking to hold me and just kind of knowing there was that part of him that was longing for a family of his own and seeing the personal ads, trying to find Mm -hmm. um, a a mate, things like that. A Um, squaw? Yes. (laughs) Could you imagine being a woman and showing up and being like, oh my oh, gosh, this is right. what we're doing. I, I, I thought the same thing. And I thought he really thinks that a woman would come and you, stay and be okay you with guys, You never know. You never know. There could have been no. somebody. What? Right. You know? We're, we're saying That's it from the true. comfort of our homes. You're right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You never know. But yes, um, and then I would read, you know, the following evening, I would be up late and looking at, you know, the a journal entry again, where he's talking about his experiments, um, which those are people or, you know, it, there would just be some sort of horrific visual of, you know, his, the, the evidence that was found in his cabin or something like that. And so it was a constant juxtaposition for me with my own feelings and what I knew, but then also like just uncovering all these pieces that were dark and, you know, tragic. I love how you just frame that because in the same way that you and your your neighbors and, you know, fellow residents there are all adjusting to this facet of this man that you don't know, what you're also portraying in the book is that he can alternatively be tender and want to connect with this infant and also completely objectify other human beings as just experiments. I mean, he can really dehumanize them in just a flip of a switch. Um, yeah, and that I, is I portrayed think, really well. Thank you. I think that's something that also I just kind of had to come to. And, and we talked about, you know, I, I did definitely consume true crime, but... Um, Maybe not as much as like somebody who hadn't lived true crime, possibly. Um, and and that's something that is so important to remember is that I feel like when you picture, or many people 
picture a murderer or, um, you know, somebody who has been a, a perpetrator in some way, you think of a monster and you just think there's no way that they have like these soft compassion, mm-hmm. but they do. And so if, if we're constantly looking and seeking the monster, we miss, you know, what's, what's right in front of us, which is this very layered and complicated person. Absolutely. And that's what we really try and encourage our audience to do with our show is we know it's easier to label them and put them in a jar and put them up on the shelf and lock them away forever. But here's the stuff that, you know, is is their makeup. And you really show the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I feel like at the end, you kind of give this gift over to the reader to say, all right, you get to decide what to do with this. You know, whatever your takeaway is on Ted, here it is. Because for these lovely flowery moments that only you can give us that we have never seen in any documentary or heard anywhere before, the victim impact statements and you reading some of those is some of the most powerful, chilling thing. I'm getting goosebumps now still with it is the most powerful thing you'll ever hear in your life. And the articulation of these particular victims was just... I don't, it, you know, every victim matters, but the fact that these were people that were so poised and had the most beautiful but cutting words is incredibly powerful. Yeah. So you must be listening to it on Audible, Dr. Susan. I listen to everything. <laughs> so the, I will say there's, there's a few oh, times in the book while I was narrating it, which by the way, I had to like try out for, which was crazy. That's awesome. Other, <laughs> you made it. <laughs> made it. Um, but there were times where I just had to just kind of like gather myself. And initially the, um, you know, I had my sound engineer and my director there and I was like, oh, I, maybe I should stop. And they're like, no. Keep going because this is how you feel. And you can probably hear while I'm reading the victim impact statements. I'm not like ugly crying, but I'm definitely like there's there. It's I'm emotional because I mean, just hearing it. And that's why I wanted to include those in my book. Hearing the words from the victims themselves is just a whole nother layer. And so again, I would listen to them and I was speaking them um, for the audible version. And so many of those like fleeting memories of like, oh, Ted was sweet when he brought me those rocks or whatever. It was just like, I couldn't even, I couldn't really, that was still there, but it wasn't, you know, top of mind. You can't like hold those two things at once for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it, thank you for including all of that because I, like I said, I think it does give us this um, well-rounded view without a particular agenda or perspective of Ted, certainly perspective of your life and your experience, but just of Ted and for you to say, okay, you know, do what you will with this and here's my contribution. Yeah, it's everybody's own decision to make what they what they take from it and what they, what they leave the book feeling. And my intent was just to deliver all of the information that I personally was able to uncover and share my own story, share my own emotions around it. 
And everybody at the end, I hope when you read it or you listen to it, that you can feel that. You can feel like my own um, wrestling with these different emotions in it. And I mean, at the end of the day, I just want my reader to feel (laughs) reading it. Well, whether you're reading or listening, we certainly (laughs) feel, trust me. It's Absolutely. it's a wonderful, wonderful journey. Um, thank you for your work on that. I know it's a labor of love. Um, and I hope we'll get more from you. Is this a new new area <laughs> that you're going to be diving into anytime soon again? So my publisher has already asked, like, are we doing this again? Um, <laughs> I am definitely... I mean, this, I will say, was like so... Um, just like emotionally exhausting oh, to, yeah. to write about, you know, such content and and me kind of going through it personally. And I've thought, I've toyed with the idea of doing this for someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody who has experienced true crime as true life. And, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see. But uh, right now I'm just, I'm just happy to, you know, support this book for now. Oh my gosh, please. Yeah. Enjoy <laughs> this part of it. I mean, here it is out in the world and uh, what a wonderful, wonderful thing to see and a legacy of your own to leave as well. Yeah. What a, what a cool thing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Absolutely. We've just been, this is, this has been great. And, um, and like Charlie was saying, I, I can't wait to see your next, whatever you do next. I want to see it. <laughs> saying that. So for, I don't know if all of your viewers can, are, are um, able to see um, the, the screen, but I was going to share just a few pictures that I have. Please, and, yeah. Oh, and then yes. I will, um, I will post these specific ones I'm sharing on my Instagram. If you, if you're just listening, which is just um, Jamie Gearing author. Yeah, I was going to say, let people know where they can find you for sure. I'm going to put the link to your book up in the chat right now too. This one, um, some have seen, some haven't. But this is the Kaczynski that was arrested in 1996. Um, This is the man with the the clothing rotting (laughs) off and the FBI agents putting him in his transportation belt. Looks like he smells lovely. I can smell it from here. Yeah, it is. Um, I've actually never shared this particular picture before, but this is the um, this is the bomb that was found in Kaczynski's wow. cabin, and this um, you may have read in the book. This is the so- the sawdust pile that it was actually blown up in. Yes. The FBI had to detonate it, of course, at a safe distance with a with a robot. So this this was it. This is what they pulled out of the cabin. And didn't you say that was your sawdust pile that you used to play in? Yes. <laughs> yep. Great. Wow. I mean, again, Talk about those, coming full circle. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so that that particular image like holds a lot for me. I'm wow. like, oh my gosh, that's that's the that's the pile of sawdust that I would you know climb to the top of and roll around in and then like have to like shake out my clothes for days afterwards and then they detonated Kaczynski's bomb in it i mean it's just wild oh my god and then um this one is a pair of shoes that Ted would wear and he attached different size soles brilliant the bottoms brilliant this is his his jeans his cot that he slept in i mean look at the soot 
on that wall in there. Can you imagine? Like, no. Like, how was he even alive? I mean, how did he not die from carbon monoxide poisoning, from inhaling that soot, from... He had no, probably no medical attention, no dental attention all those years. Like, it's really kind of amazing that he survived. You do describe that he was very emaciated at the end. Yeah, he was. I mean, there was... So this is a really, really rare picture of... Ted, oh, wow. it is the early 80s, and it is um, his family was visiting, and this is, you know, it didn't that didn't last long. So it was either probably David or Wanda um, that had taken this picture inside of Ted's cabin. Wow! And it, so this is incredibly rare because pictures of of Ted obviously are not very common. But well, yes, those are just a few of the crazy wild uh, <laughs> pictures. Oh my gosh! From- my my childhood in the case that I had to share. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I got to see his cabinet when it was at the museum in Washington, D.C. And it certainly puts it into perspective <laughs> for you. Yeah, and that was, I mean, as part of his trial, the um, prosecutors were adamant about bringing that. And yeah. I think also Ted's side too, because it really showed what, you know, the the mental illness had to look like in order Mm -hmm. to survive in that cabin and what what living that type of lifestyle could potentially do to a human being. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing those with us, Jamie. Everybody go follow Jamie on her Instagram. Anywhere else where they can follow you? I'm everywhere. I'm uh, Jamie Gearing on Facebook. Um, Excuse me, Jamie Gearing author on Facebook, Jamie Gearing on Twitter. And just jamiegearing.com, you can connect with me there and subscribe to my newsletter and find out where I'm going on tour and, you know, any any fun news. Very That's good. Great. Are you thank you? Are you did you put a Southern California stop on your tour yet? I am working on it. I okay. haven't yet. <laughs> okay. I'll keep sending bookshop ideas your way. <laughs> yes. Please do. Yeah, please do. We will, we will for sure be there if, if you come and do a book awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely think um, there's quite there's quite a few people who have messaged me and there's interest there. So oh, we'll, I would love to add that. We'll rally a bunch of people. We'll, we'll get <laughs> yeah. LA people there for you for sure. We'll make it happen. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank, thank you, you so guys. much, Jimmy. Take care. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on your Saturday afternoon. Um, And we'll see you next time on Get Vocal. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned 
to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential wherever you get your audio so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Confidential.